You're listening to Tash Amplified, a podcast that seeks to transform research and experience concerning inclusion and equity for people with disabilities into solutions people can use in their everyday lives. Today we're talking with Alice Wong and Andrew Pulrang about their numerous projects, most importantly, Crip the Vote and the Disability Visibility Project. We discuss the election, the affordances of online collaboration and activism, intersectionality and disability, and the importance of culture, not just politics. Concerned about the implications of the election outcome for people with disabilities? Wondering where we go from here? Crip the Vote will be hosting an election discussion as one of their regular Twitter chats on Thursday, November 10th, 2016, starting at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern. For more on how to participate, search for the hashtag CripTheVote on Twitter, or go to facebook.com slash CripTheVote. Alice Wong, tell us about the path that brought you to your current thinking and activism. Well, I guess, uh, you know, I think it's always been a gradual process. You know, I grew up uh, disabled and really started becoming more politicized as a high school and uh, college student. And a lot of my activism was kind of just, you know, for my individual self self-advocacy, and then, you know, as I kind of realized that, you know, what I'm doing for myself has an impact on others, so, you know, I got more involved on, uh, you know, campus activities, and, you know, just really getting a sense that there's, you know, broader issues, and there's a larger disability community outside of myself, and, once I connected with that as a young adult, you know, I really started feeling like, wow, you know, we all have power. We all have a voice. So it really kind of uh, came into culmination uh, these last two or three years when I started the Disability Visibility Project. And what, what was your inspiration for the Disability Visibility Project? What, what goals did you set out for yourself, and how did you get started in that? Well, I started early on when, uh, you know, it was like the year before the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And as you, you know, very familiar with all, a lot of people with the disability community, people were, you know, gearing up, getting ready to, you know, celebrate you know, really looking forward and looking back and, you know, doing a lot of commemoration of, you know, who we are as a people. And one thing that really bothered me was that there really wasn't enough disability history out there. And I thought, you know, what are some ways that we could really highlight the full diversity of, you know, uh, our community? And then I went to a StoryCorps event in uh, San Francisco in about 2014. And, you know, StoryCorps is a national nonprofit that's an oral history. And they basically, you know, want to celebrate all stories of, and they have, they have community partnerships all over the country with diverse populations. And I asked them, you know, hey, have you ever thought of forming a community partnership with people with disabilities, and they were very open to it. And I thought, hey, I could do this one-year project, you know, in 2014, kind of like a one-year campaign to collect stories uh, and have them available at StoryCorps and have them archived at the Library of Congress, which is the other upside of StoryCorps is that anybody who participates has the option of archiving their story. And the idea of archiving and having a record of our of our 
of our culture and our history at this particular time period was really exciting to me. So it should have been just a one-year thing, and it really took off so that now it's kind of indefinite, and uh, it's going to be a ongoing uh, collection of, you know, oral histories and also an online community that really celebrates and creates disability stories and culture. Andrew Poolrang, you're embarking on a second phase in your career and in your thinking. Tell us about your first phase and what's led you to upend everything and start something new? Well, um, <clears throat> I started out, I mean, I've had disabilities all my life. And when I was in high school and really almost all the way through college, um, I kind of had the, the idea that I wasn't ever going to do anything in the disability field. Um, I had no real idea of anything that the disability was anything but a sickness or a problem you had uh, that you dealt with doctors and tried to ignore the rest of the time. Honestly, I really, that was the way I was. And um, really, it was only later in college I started to get exposed to the idea that there was some kind of a matchup between disability as an experience and politics, which happened to also be a big interest of mine. Um, you know, I was a pretty liberal, left-wing kind of guy, not radical, but into politics. Um, and I found that fascinating, but it, was, it wasn't until late that I realized that the two could actually go together in an in interesting way. And so um, from there, I kind of, I kept, I went to graduate school, but then when that was all done, I, I ended up going to uh, working at an independent living center in my hometown that was just starting up. And I worked there a number of years and ended up becoming the executive director and continued on that for a bunch of years. And pretty soon there was, you know, like 20 or 20 plus years later, was still doing it and enjoying it and, and you know, having a good time with it and doing good work. But I kind of felt like I had done enough at, at one place for a while. Um, various other factors came in, into play that made it a good time to to go. There was a, some good people there that could take over. And I wanted to explore other aspects of disability work. And really just all I really had in mind was blogging and uh, doing kind of website stuff uh, for a time and then seeing what else transpired. And I mean, and about a year or two after that is when I, well, early on I discovered the Disability Visibility Project. That was one of the first cool websites that I found when I started really digging in and then got to know uh, Alice and Greg Baratan from blogging and doing social media. Uh, and that led to Crypt the Vote, which, is, which, as I say, is not something I did not set out initially to say, oh, I want to do like big time activism uh, on any sort of scale. I was really the first blogging stuff that I did was very introspective and mm -hmm. uh, on on my site is called Disability Thinking. And that was literally what I was interested in is digging into what does it all mean um, and then getting a little bit social with other disabled writers about what they were thinking about. Um, but it was really great to get involved with Crypt the Vote because it also got me back into the political part of things. Yeah, and I also fell into activism as well. I mean, there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, I think in previous generations, you know, just, you know, full-time activists, you know, like, you know, doing direct actions, working in the nonprofit world. That really wasn't my uh, upbringing either. I'm basically a researcher at a university, and I've always uh, considered doing a lot of my research as part of, like, you know, a complement to the, the kind of activism I'm doing, getting, uh, uh, getting research into the hands of activists who can use this information to forward their their advocacy, but yeah, I kind of fell into it later in life as well. 
What led you, the two of you and your, I guess, third um, partner, Greg Baratan, to find some sort of uh, commonality and to what led to your collaboration? Well, I guess uh, the three of us were all friends already on Twitter and Facebook. And I think that says a lot about social media. You know, we're all kind of doing our own thing. And yet we found each other and we really, I really feel connected to this larger community of people all over the world actually doing some really interesting things. And we all have really similar, not to say we all have similar experiences, but we can all, you know, relate to one another and find solidarity in one another. And uh, I think that's what, you know, was the, the, the foundation for uh, Greg. I think uh, coming up with the idea for CryptoVote and asking uh, Andrew and I to get involved. So what do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, that's about how it happened that we were like, just talking about amongst ourselves about the upcoming election and uh, wondering if disability would ever really come up in a meaningful way. And um, yeah, I think that was the main motivator. I mean, I, I think I think we decided that instead of waiting to see if it would come up, we would just go ahead and start talking about it. And um, you and Greg, I would say on balance, we're, we're more familiar with Twitter and how hashtags actually work as a rallying tool and as a communication technique. So, and I kind of said, yeah, that sounds good. Not really knowing fully what it was or how it would work and soon found out. Yeah, and I feel like, uh, you know, I think the election was so involved, you know, with the, you know, primaries and all of the kind of, you know, huge number of candidates last fall. And, you know, it was just kind of, you know, the bind of it. And, uh, you know, it was up until January when we started. It was like, wow, there really wasn't any substantive conversation yet. So we kind of thought it's time for us to kind of insert ourselves in a very public way on Twitter to say, hey, we're here. This is what we care about. And we're going to carry on these conversations. And, you know, people are welcome to join us if they want to learn. Yeah, and actually, I forgot to mention that. I mean, before we did crypto, started crypto vote, I had already started doing some uh, writing on the election. For I did a, an article or two for uh, the Daily Dot, and on anticipating the election, and then some columns for uh, or like blog posts for the Center for Disability Rights in Rochester. So I'd already started looking at and writing about. Uh, you know, disability in the campaign, which at that point, as Alice said, was mostly about its absence, you know, and um, so that informed my, informed me going in as well. Mm -hmm. What are some of the issues that are forefront for people with disabilities in this election that you seek most to address with Crip the Vote, both in terms of the process of participation and voting and in the policy sphere. Andrew, do you want to take that first? Um, yeah, I think, well, first of all, before anything else, we wanted to uh, get a conversation going without necessarily knowing what the topics would be. Um, I mean, of course, there are certain big ones like, you know, long-term care and, um, actual access to voting, um, uh, employment issues from a couple of different angles that we could have said from the start, of course, we, we would like these to be dealt with, but, but we didn't get super specific. What we did do is put up an online survey um, and ask people to go in and kind of prioritize a whole parcel of different disability issues or disability proposals that could be you know, made by any given politician, not once it had been, but just out of our heads, kind of. And um, we did get like there were, 
we had over 500 responses and people prioritized the issues they really cared about. And we kind of used that going forward to give ourselves an idea of what we wanted to talk about. Um, but actually, as it turned out, we probably didn't even need to do that because people, once they started uh, participating in our chats and on a daily basis, they brought up the issues that were important to them. And again, it, it, a lot of it revolves around um, access to actual voting and I think a feeling, maybe not so much an issue, but a feeling of, are we even heard? Do they even care? Do they even know we exist? Um, mm -hmm. Before even getting to very specific issues. Yeah, and also, you know, we've, uh, we've opened up our chats with having guest hosts, and that really, you know, uh, transformed kind of our thinking about the issues. You know, we've had uh, chats about uh, mass incarceration, poverty, long-term services and supports, and, you know, we've had people in the community who are more, uh, more knowledgeable about this and who are also on Twitter to uh, share, their, uh, share their expertise with us. And that's been a really great way to kind of expand our knowledge, but also you know, making sure that it's something that's, you know, more of an open, uh, open campaign. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, one thing that, you know, we've seen in the last, you know, several years is this, you know, really painful and very real issue of people of color being harassed and brutalized by the police. And, you know, many of these people people of color who are killed by police are also people with disabilities. So this is, a, I think, one of the biggest uh, concerns right now is, uh, you know, this, these twins issues of mass incarceration and violence toward people with disabilities. And I think another thing that's really important to think about is that, you know, disability is an intersectional issue that there are people of color, there are women, there are uh, LGBTQ people with disabilities, and that all of their identities are they need to be acknowledged and a part of who they are as disabled people. Between Hillary Clinton's regular mention of people with disabilities in her speeches and Anastasia Somoza addressing the Democratic Convention, the uh, Crypt the Vote achieving the stature that it has, but conversely, Donald Trump's mocking of Sergei Kovaleski offending so many people. Is this a watershed election for people with disabilities? Uh, I think so. in terms of visibility, I think it's a watershed moment in terms of we've never had such visibility in terms of at the Democratic National Convention, in terms of the different ads uh, put on by the Hillary Clinton campaign. I think I've counted up to at least four videos uh, that are uh, ads paid for by the Clinton campaign featuring people with disabilities or about disability. So that in itself is, I think, pretty unprecedented. But as for, you know, real substantive uh discussions of policies, I'm not really 100% sure if that's really just happened yet. But I think there's a lot of, a lot to be proud of. Yeah, I, I agree with Alice. I have the same kind of yes and no kind of ambivalence mm -hmm. because, and I think part of it is driven by some people are real policy wonks and some people are not. And, you know, it, it Speaking only for myself, I mean, having come from, um, you know, over 20 years of, of sort of in the weeds disability things, there are certain things that I already kind of take for granted and or or have ex, have had expectations for a long time. And when they're met, things like simple recognition, um, I'm certainly able to see that it's a good, it's like uh, a welcome step. 
but it's harder for me, less likely for me to get genuinely excited simply for being mentioned. Mm. While I think for others, it's genuinely exciting because they've never seen it before. Um, mm. what, I want, what I want is what I consider, quote unquote, the good stuff, which mm. is policy debates, right? But I'm also kind of realistic and realize that policy, real substance to policy debate is actually pretty rare in almost every field <laughs> in electoral politics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and you know, it is a step. I, I, I do feel like it's a watershed in some ways. Um, and certainly, um, the potential is there the way it wasn't, and certainly a lot more than I think any of us thought it would be in early January. Yeah, and I feel like early January, February, we started to see a snowball effect with more candidates were talking about submitted wages. And that was a really encouraging thing, that that was a real policy issue regarding, you know, employment of people with disabilities and sheltered workshops and whether they should be paid a bit of a wage or a decent wage. So that was encouraging, but there really wasn't much else other than that in terms of just, you know, actual policies and plans. But I think, again, you know, crypto vote will definitely continue to well after Election Day because, you know, that's what's been really... That's when the real work happens. Once the election is over, uh, you know, there's a cabinet appointments and real, you know, uh, change happening with the new administration. Most, I think that's been, I think we're going to look forward to a lot more of that. And I think, too, I mean, there's two other things that I would point out is, um, you know, one one is that, that um, Hillary Clinton did have a sort of day devoted to disability policy, um, which might have been a real, a genuine first. You know, it's something that all campaigns do is they set up calendars for issues and say, well, on Tuesday of this week, you know, whatever, we're, and they announce beforehand, we're going to talk about this thing. And often that's a way that they can highlight, you know, kind of specific policy areas that don't always come up. Um, in the in the normal course of events, and they did that with disability stuff, and I think that's kind of an interesting step that might get repeated in the next election. You know, become mm -hmm. a thing that you, the thing that they all have to do. The other thing that I would mention is um, that I think is going to be easy to forget, but maybe shouldn't be, is you know, on the Democratic side, there was this whole primary with Ber Bernie Sanders. That was an extremely big deal, and I found it interesting to see how that worked out in the disability community, and at least from my point of view, and I I'm, could be wrong in so many different ways, but it seemed like one of the things that happened was that the very some very very specific concerns and, and questions that the disability community had were not ever really answered or addressed by Sanders. And mm -hmm. I, I don't want to sound too partisan about it, because my point in saying that is that I think there are a lot of people that would have been more sympathetic to him if they'd had a little bit more feedback. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and again, and I'm not saying that's because they had bad ideas necessarily, but again, it's part of that... Uh, Maybe they just weren't prepared. They just didn't realize or think until maybe too late that, oh, here's a constituency that we really need to pay attention to, um, which isn't that surprising, again, because of the general state of how, dis how disability is still considered kind of this weird boutique issue in politics. Um, it, is, it is interesting that, you know, so many issues that, you know, people don't see as disability issues you know, that we see them as disability issues. I mean, did the third and second debate between Clinton and Trump, we saw, you know, the mention of the Obamacare and the ACA 
And for the people that are live tweeting, you see crypto votes. So many people with disabilities talked about the importance of the ACA in their lives and how it gave them health care and how, you know, people were saying that it's no exaggeration. They were saying, you know, I would die if I did not have the health care under the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, this is something that cuts across, you know, a lot of people in terms of access to health care, but, you know, for people with disabilities, it really means, you know, it has an additional dimension in terms of this is a disability issue, and this is another example of how hopefully candidates in the future can really see every issue from these different lenses and not to relegate only certain issues as, you know, uh, you know, pigeonholing us into certain things. There's a significant national discussion going on about um, what what you mentioned earlier about the oh, the excessive policing of certain minority neighborhoods, excessive incarceration, Black Lives Matter. And then there's separately a discussion about disability issues, which, as you as you pointed out, tends to focus around issues of health care and employment. But something that I consider consistently remarkable is when you look at, say, the Washington Post's database of police-involved shootings, in absolute numbers, there are just as many people with disabilities who've been shot by the police this year as there are African Americans. And, you know, oftentimes overlap. Do you think that there's any awareness of the intersectionality of these issues at the level of our our political discussion? I mean, Hillary Clinton actually used the word intersectional in one of her stump speeches, but I don't know if that was just a throwaway line. Uh, I guess. I mean, there's so many people that we know who are people of disabled people of color who have been working on these issues. People like, you know, Talila Lewis, uh, Leroy Moore. And they've been telling these, you know, again and again, they've been repeating about this intersectionality and about how anybody who cares about police violence, police brutality, mass incarceration, really needs to take into account the, uh, the lives and uh, stories of disabled people of color. And I don't I don't see it happening yet in terms of, you know, other non-disabled people really getting it yet. And I feel like this is, you know, just, uh, what we try to do is just try to amplify these stories and amplify, you know, what the work of other people are doing. And, you know, we, you know, hopefully that it'll get out there, but I'm not really sure if it's really reached, you know, the the best public consciousness yes about looking at you know police brutality and uh, systemic racism in the same way as you know how does it affect people with disabilities of color? I I agree. I mean I think it, it's uh, to be honest it's it's a new concept to me as well, um, which is another reason I'm kind of glad that I got out of one part of the movement, got into another, is to get a different angle on things. And to me, I mean, the the most striking thing that finally got through my head was this very issue that it's, it's so ingrained to talk about, well, not only black people, but people with disabilities have X happen to them. And not as if, as if they're exclusive groups, right? And they're they're not. I mean, sometimes they are, but they're not. There is that overlap, and that's the whole. That's what intersectionality is. And I, I just don't think there's enough people who know that yet, or how they probably know it, but they've never actually thought about it in that way. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know why. Um, it's it's pretty simple. It seems pretty simple once you lay it out that 
you can be both or all three or all four or all five things all at once. Uh, and the more of them you are, the more likely you are to have something happen to you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem difficult to me, but uh, I don't know, maybe terminology gets in the way or, or racism or whatever, but. I mean, racism and ableism, right? I mean, I think there's still a, I think there's still an aversion to talk about disability, and I think this is where this might be, you know, some sort of lag, and I, in terms of bringing up the disability angle, in terms of other broader, broader uh, social justice issues. So, you know, there's just a lot of people just. You know, working really hard on this, and yet, and I guess, you know, CryptoVoe is just going to be one of the, one part of this effort. What impact has CryptoVoe had? What are some areas where more work remains? I'm not really I don't sure. Think we just, know. Yeah, I don't think we have a measurable outcome. And what we do know from our tweets is that we've had a positive impact on a lot of individuals who said, like, you know, they really feel a connection to this uh, identity in this community. And, you know, they feel very empowered by it. So that in itself is a success. And uh, we've had folks, you know, tweet us and tell us, you know, I've registered to vote for the first time, you know, or that I've got a... I'm gonna see. I'm gonna volunteer. I'm gonna. I went to a rally for the first time. I'm gonna offer rides to people on election day. So I think in a lot of little individual ways, we've, you know, helped uh, folks kind of spark their interest in political participation. I think also the fact that we did get, we have had news coverage and, and uh, media coverage that shows that we've helped. Um, journalists of various of various types um, get a handle on disability as a political issue. I mean, I think that maybe some of those other circumstances that, that you mentioned before, um, you know, like Trump mocking the disabled reporter and also the, the police killings and various other things kind of hurt their interest, but they maybe didn't know how to get a handle on it. And we were we were one of the places they could go to get some background, and that probably helped, you know, keep that balloon uh, pumped up for a while, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I think people then read some of those stories and maybe, I, be I believe, started to view disability as a political, as a legitimate political issue, maybe mm -hmm. for the first time, and have an outlet to play around with that. Uh, people with disabilities, people, you know, tangentially connected with disabilities, some yeah. parents, you know, we had some parents who maybe didn't think of it politically before that kind of seemed like uh, a light bulb went off when they read something about it. Um, that That is kind of stuff satisfied me a lot because, again, it kind of mirrors my experience with uh, coming to realize, oh my gosh, this is political, not just personal. Yeah, there was a really nice, uh, there was a mom of an autistic adult who published an editorial, or I think she published a, an opinion piece in the Washington Post about her experience of registering her son, she and her son registered to vote, and I think she definitely said that, you know, trip to vote was a factor in kind of encouraging her to do that, and she and her son, you know, you know, registered, and she said it was a great experience, and I think that's, that's really something we can be proud of. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of dismissing of online activism you know people call it slacktivism or things like that but i i think it's the story of donald trump's remarks being caught on a hot microphone you know my, my sense is that maybe 10 or 15 years ago 
that just locker room talk or boys will be boys would have cut it as an excuse, but that 10 years of social justice warriors talking about rape culture on campuses, on Twitter, uh, in comment sections on YouTube, have raised this issue to the level of public consciousness in a way that makes that no longer an acceptable excuse. And so I think that this kind of low-level conversation on to like small audience to small audience eventually adds up. So maybe we should uh, come back and evaluate, reevaluate in an election or two from now. Yeah, I, think I mean, I also a... think it's. Did you know that, Well, I was gonna say I think I think it's also important to um, that we who are doing it uh, kind of keep a level head as to how much we actually are claiming to accomplish, right? Um, I think mm-hmm. some of the some of the criticism of, of activism and social media might be almost uh, valid when it's so overblown and like we're literally the most powerful people or we're going to change everything and blah, 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 blah. And we're not really doing that. We really started out saying we just want to start to have a conversation. We want to do realistically what we think we can do. Um, we're not speaking for everybody. We're only speaking for ourselves. We're going to be, you know, bipartisan, but that doesn't mean that you can't be partisan in our in our midst if you want to. You know, we had limited goals. Um, tried not to get a, a big head about it, and I think that helps a lot. I hope I hope we actually did that, but I think even mm-hmm. trying to helped a lot. Yeah, and I think uh, you know our our approach was very modest, and I think it was really to please and serve ourselves and in a lot of ways, you know, just giving us a space. And I think this is where, you know, activism, uh, whatever form it takes, really comes from feeling like, you know, you're part of this larger group. And I think this is just, you know, what the way we facilitate that is by giving folks, you know, a place and a a day to, to, to call this uh, to this idea of you know more political participation, more active participation by people with disabilities in the political sphere. So, really, it starts with conversations, and do we really see ourselves, you know, complementary with other you know grassroots organizers and you know people really you know doing the nitty gritty work, but. You know, a lot of it starts with just having a, a place where people can tell their stories. And that's, I think, the, the, the role that we fill. You've both taken a lot of interest in cultural forms, whether it's your Crip Lit or Crip Hop Disability Visibility Project Twitter chats, Alice, or your blog and podcast, Andrew, where portrayals of disability on television and movies is a major theme. Why is culture important, and why are stories especially so? I think with disability, there it's very easy to get the feeling that you're all alone. And um, stories, hearing other people's stories shows you that you're not. I also think that there is a sort of a subtle uh, dampener on on telling stories. I think that there's, I have felt at various times in my life, uh, a social pressure, never spoken but there in any way, that says, you know what, we're just not interested in hearing your story. You're a nice person, we like you, you're accepted, whatever, blah, blah, blah but we'd really just rather not hear about your disability stuff because that's depressing and upsetting. And so I think that there's a lot of people feel like they can't tell their stories, um, especially when parts of their stories are, you know, bad news or uh, not pleasant. Um, But I think you have to tell them. (laughs) Um, If not not for yourself, then for other people to realize that they're not unique. Uh, yeah, I agree. There are, bigger, I think, uh, there are bigger reasons than that. 
Yeah, and I feel like we just we're just barely scratching the surface. Uh, you know, the full range and complexity and, you know, wonderful diversity of, you know, people with disabilities. I think uh, for so long, you know, the, the popular culture and, you know, media has really been very much, you know, from an able-bodied standpoint. And they've been looking at us one way. But, you know, the perspective of people with disabilities telling their own stories is very different. And I think, uh, you know, just as there's other kind of, uh, you know, efforts to, you know, in terms of uh, we need diverse books and other campaigns to really, you know, get away from this white default, you know, storytelling in terms of Hollywood. You know, it's a part of that is also about how do we embrace and encourage disabled people to create their stories, to be out there and creating culture and creating media. Because, you know, for so long, it's reporters not really getting the stories right. They're, you know, they're always framing us as, you know, inspirations or, you know, on the other end, you know, as, you know, this, you know, villains or very much extremes, but not really the full humanity. And I think that's where, that's why storytelling is important, is to show this full range. And I think we're just getting started. What were some of the standout insights from the Cripplet Twitter chat? Well, I guess uh, there's so many people with disabilities who are writing. I think it's really exciting. I mean, I was pretty surprised to discover so many people that were, that are on uh, Twitter that have, you know, disabilities and that are, you know, openly, you know, identify with triplet. I think, you know, there's a lot of people with disabilities out there in the world who may have invisible disabilities or other disabilities who just don't identify, and that's fine. I mean, that's, you know, everybody has their own, you know, process. And it's really exciting to see people uh, talking about writing and their creation of characters and how their disability uh, identity, how that all plays into their creative process. So it's really nice to see this happening, and, uh, also to see the wide range of genres, people writing, you know, sci-fi, you know, historical fiction. But there's still a lot of barriers that uh, that we've discovered in the crippler chats, like, you know, a lot of uh, barriers in terms of getting published, you know, getting, you know, feeling this sense of discrimination and stigma by editors and, you know, getting their getting their work published and getting paid for their work. So there's still a lot of, you know, barriers in terms of physical, financial, and social uh, for disabled writers out there who want to make a living. What were some of the standout insights from the Disability and Poverty Twitter chat? Well, the, the one that comes to my mind first is um, a point about employment, which is that there are several different arguments about employment um, that and and the more familiar one is about we want to be employed, how do we get there, and what are the barriers to us having getting jobs and getting better jobs? The less familiar one and the one that's almost like a taboo, which I think is equally interesting and maybe valid is what about if you Right now, employment is not your highest priority, and that maybe you are going to say that because of my disability right now, I'm not up to it. I'm not prepared to be employed. I'm, I can't be employed, which is almost, like I said, a taboo in the traditional disability rights community. You're not supposed to think that. And we had a number of people in the chat who said, you know, and, and, and other times too, we're, they're kind of tired of hearing 
all of the good things that people are supposed to have as citizens if you are a work, if you work, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, nobody, should, nobody should be in poverty if they work full time. Um, uh, you know, Americans deserve a, a break uh, as long as you work hard, right? Mm-hmm. And people are saying, well, what if I can't work right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, does that mean I deserve poverty? Um, right. And that came out quite a bit. Yeah, I think, it's, I think there's a connection between, you know, capitalism and kind of the worth of our bodies. You know, are we really, are disabled lives really measured by what we should produce and by our labor? And I think that's a really good point that, you know, people with disabilities and poor people should be, you know, their, their values should be, you know, completely measured by their, you know, contributions to the workforce. You know, everybody has a value in terms of what they bring to their communities and their, their neighborhoods to their families. And why isn't that enough to have a, you know, to have a sustainable life? I think that was really, you know, just really important to, for people to think about. And also... You know, for me, I think what was interesting is that poverty is not just about an individual's uh, income and assets. It's really a lot of environmental, systemic reasons why people are in poverty. I mean, you know, again, it's about the social model. It's about, you know, people who who may have some income, who may have it you know, some assets, but they live it, they're, they're impoverished because they are living in inaccessible housing, they're living in communities where they can't get around, they don't have the, you know, long-term services and supports that they need to be able to participate in society. So a lot of these things are just as, you know, uh, huge measures of a person's social poverty than actual financial poverty. And that, to me, was another huge dimension about the, uh, poverty that I don't think, you know, we've heard in any kind of, you know, discussion throughout the, uh, throughout the campaign. You two are both enthusiasts of online communication and activism. What are its possibilities and what are its limitations? Oh, I, I think, I mean, one of the possibilities of it is kind of what you referred to as one of the things that people knock about it, which is that it's actually pretty easy to do, or at least for a portion of us. Um, I mean, certainly you have to have a computer or some kind of mobile device but those are, are, are genuinely getting more and more affordable. Certainly the mobile devices are. And you have, you know, it isn't totally accessible to everybody, but it, it's more so than you might think. And once, once you have access, you don't have to go anywhere to do this stuff. And for people with certain kinds of disabilities, that's a huge deal. So the things that people might criticize about it you know, oh, it's lazy, you're, you're not getting off your butt and putting your body on the line, you're not getting, you know, all that stuff. Well, that's a plus for us, <laughs> you know, for some of us. Yeah. As they say, that's a feature, not a, not a bug. Uh, and that's, and, and one of the things, incidentally, that I learned about that I didn't really understand before is that for me, it's a physical plus. And I was so interested to hear people with, some, some, you know, cognitive disabilities and autism and things like that, who like it because they don't have to go into big crowds, right? Or mm-hmm. it had never, literally, never occurred to me. Um, mm-hmm. So there are certain strengths of the medium that that kind of fit very nicely with having disabilities. Yeah, I think uh, we've definitely had people who said, you know. People with chronic illness and chronic death, they participate in our chats, but they're in bed. They're like, I'm feeling really, you know, sick and low energy, but 
I tweeted at that is bad, and I think that's one of the things that's so great about Twitter or Facebook is that people don't have to put on their clothes, that they don't have to travel somewhere, and I think, you know, I'm really taking advantage of that too. I mean, I think, you know, for the three of us, Andrew and Greg and I, you know, organizing a Twitter chat is a whole lot easier in terms of compared to an actual, let's say, in-person forum or meeting discussion about the same issue because you don't have to deal with the logistics. You don't have to deal with you know, finding a space, accessibility of a space, rental of a space. I mean, this is another, you know, very real thing that costs money and time and actual labor and uh, energy. So I think, you know, there's a different kind of expenditure in energy when it comes to using social media. But it's, it definitely seems to be a little bit more uh, opening and inclusive for some people with disabilities, uh, granted, there's still a lot of barriers for people who, you know, some people do find it too overwhelming during our Twitter chats in terms of the, the, the flood of information coming through, through our hashtag. So that's another, you know, aspect that could be very, uh, that could be a barrier. And also, I think, you know, yeah, there's a lot of people who just don't, that just don't like technology and don't like social media because they find it very impersonal. So on the flip side, well, some people like that aspect of it. Some people find it very, you know, discombobulating. So, you know, there's something out there for everyone. And I think that's another important thing to emphasize that, you know, we're just not, we're not the... We're not the only, you know, thing out there, and I think that's just, we're just one aspect of, uh, of people uh, reaching out and having these discussions. I think, yeah, I'd like to add that I think, I'm, I'm glad Alice mentioned um, the planning part, because that's, that's, I hadn't thought of that too, but, but absolutely, the planning, it, it's so different than traditional organizing that we don't have high stakes meetings. I mean, we've had a few that we scheduled with each other to say, okay, we have to talk about, you know, three things on this date at this time because we really need to. But it's only happened, happened a few times. Most of this has been organized by the fact that, that um, Alice is on the West Coast, Greg and I are on the East Coast, Alice is a night owl, and so, so somewhere between 11 p.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern, those that little bit of time on, on any given day, we're just going to be on Facebook Messenger talking about whatever. And some of it's planning and some of it's just sharing stuff and whatever. And um, I'd say about a quarter of the time I'm, I'm in bed myself. So it's <laughs> and it's fantastic. It's just unbelievable. And when I think of all the meetings that everybody hates mm -hmm. that take forever to plan to even have the meeting to discuss the thing that you actually want to do, not having that is just incredible. Mm -hmm. So much energy is saved, mental energy, not just physical. Yeah, I feel like, you know, that's another, you know, just to give, you know, Andrew, Greg, you know, a shout out is that, you know, all three of us are pretty much, you know, online at any given time so that, you know, we are really responsive to one another. So it's really just easy to be totally on the same page. You know, we might have a question for each other. Or say, hey, what do you think about this? So we're really just able to communicate really well and really effectively do a lot of our preparation. You know, we used Google Docs, we used uh, a lot of the, you know, technology in terms of sharing documents. And it just really helps us facilitate, you know, just be really efficient with our planning. 
And, you know, it just it really helps me with uh, working with two people that are really responsive and just as invested and, and just as committed. So I couldn't be with, I couldn't be in a better partnership. I mean, it's just been, it's just been a real pleasure and thrill to be, uh, to be doing this for the last, the last 10 months. I absolutely, yeah, the same. <laughs> But it is, but it is partly, partly due to the technology. I mean, credit to us for sure. But, but, you know, it, it would probably be different. Not necessarily worse, but you know, uh, if we had to, it, 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 well, yeah, it would have been worse. We never would have met. Let's face it. So, yes, that's for sure. That. <laughs> I mean, it's really true that you know the social media has brought people together. I consider Greg and Andrew very good friends of mine. We see each other's faces on, on Skype and Google Hangouts, but we've never actually physically been in the same room together, and yet that's about, that doesn't really matter to me. They are just my buddies, and I feel like this is where, where we are in 2016. This is a basic thing to be, uh, to be part of. You have two Twitter chats coming up. One on October 22nd about state and local elections, and the other on October 30th on health care. What are some issues you want to address in these chats, and on what should people wanting to participate come prepared to post? Um, yeah, the one on, on uh, state and local government, actually Congress state and local government, um, I think our goal there is to... to just highlight the fact that, you know, obviously general elections involve more than just the presidency. And in fact, in some ways equally, or maybe, if not in some situations, even more important um, than the presidency. You know, the presidency is this shiny object that everybody gets fix, fixated on, but so much of what in, it directly affects disability policy and disabled people's lives, for instance, happens at the state level with state legislature, legislators and governors. Um, and at the local level, you know, when you talk about violence against people with disabilities and, and police uh, mishandling of, of disabled people of all sorts, you're dealing with sheriffs, right? You're dealing with judges, so, at least in New York State where we vote on judges, imagine that. Um, you know, you're dealing with local judges and stuff. Um, so, I mean, and city councils on, on whether sidewalks get done properly and uh, buildings get, you know, building codes get enforced. So I think we, you know, that's one thing is just generally, hey, don't forget this stuff. Um, and one thing I would like to say as a preparation is we've been collecting the Twitter handles of as many congressional candidates as we can so that people can tweet their interest in disability issues to them. You know, we've already got all the Senate ones. That's fairly easy to do because there's only 50 Senate seats. Um, they're all collected, and uh, we've got them posted on our, our webs, website. Um, the House ones, there's so many, I'm sure we won't get them all. But please go and, and you know either send them to us in advance or maybe be prepared to say, Who's running in your area that you're interested in, and how do we reach them? Who are their Twitter handles, um, so that we can kind of drag them into the into the discussion? And on, uh, on October thirtieth, we'll be having a chat on healthcare, and it's going to be about all types of healthcare in terms of you know Medicare, Medicaid, uh, private insurance, you know all forms of you know, it's health coverage, and again, it's going to be, you know, a lot of general and broad questions about healthcare coverage, you know, asking people, you know, what what kind of, you know, issues they've had with uh, obtaining healthcare, uh, keeping their coverage, and, you know, what is, uh, what kind of barriers they face in terms of, health care coverage and health care services. 
And, you know, this is really sparked by the last two debates because of the mention of, you know, uh, we have two candidates that have very two different positions on the Affordable Care Act. And uh, we have to really dive into, you know, what the impact of the Affordable Care Act on people with disabilities because already a lot of folks have been tweeting about, you know, what would happen if the ACA was repealed and how that would impact our lives. You know, this idea of the, you know, one of the things about the ACA is that the, you know, nobody with pre-existing conditions can be denied healthcare, and that was, I mean, this is a huge thing for people with disabilities, and what would be the consequences if you know, what candidate won and wanted to repeal us. So we hope to explore that. So we just hope folks will just, you know, want to be open in terms of sharing their stories about uh, finding and keeping their healthcare coverage and maybe their ideas for improving it. What are you two going to be working on once the election's behind us? In our lives or with CryptoVote? <laughs> oh, with with your uh, activism projects and in your disability work. Um, well, actually, I, ironically, I've kind of gone back on a contractual basis working for the center that I used to work for doing social media. Um, so that's, you know, part of what I'm doing. I also do tutoring at a local community college in, in English, but... Um, I do hope to continue to work with, not hope, I will work with, uh, keep to keep CryptoVote going. Because we have definitely talked about the need to keep the concept moving and to keep it going on to the next stage. Yeah, I mean, the three of us have, we've already discussed it, but we're definitely going to, CryptoVote will definitely continue well after the election day. You know, we realize it's going to be not just about elections. It's going to be about broader, you know, political participation and disability policies. So, I think probably, you know, after Election Day, we probably will need to take a little break and a little breather. But uh, we'll probably come out with some sort of, you know, blog post or statement about our our vision for the future and... Uh, what will continue the the future form of uh, CryptoVote, but we'll definitely continue. And yeah, so I'll be, uh, I will be continuing my work with the Disability Visibility Project, uh, you know, getting folks to uh, contribute just blog posts, encouraging people to, to record their own histories with the StoryCorps app, and just uh, overall having uh, other Twitter chats with uh, about disability issues. Where can people find you two and your myriad projects online? Let's see, um, well, my stuff is generally at uh, my website called Disability Thinking, and it's disabilitythinking.com. And and there's some of the crypto vote stuff gets posted there, um, but that's that's where you can find me. And from there, you can also get to my Facebook page and my Twitter uh, account and stuff like that. Yeah, and uh, disability visibility project is very easy to find. It's just disabilityvisibilityproject.com, and my personal Twitter handle is sf direwolf. And the Disability Visibility Project's Twitter handle is D-I-S Visibility. Alice Wong and Andrew Polrang, thank you very much for taking the time today to talk to our members about Crypt the Vote and the Disability Visibility Project, the importance of voting and activism, and your many other projects. Thank you, Donald. Thank you very much. We enjoyed it. You've been listening to Tash Amplified. For more about the series, including show notes, 
links to articles discussed, a complete transcript, and a schedule of episodes, visit tash.org amplified. You can subscribe through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app to have the series delivered automatically to your device so you never miss an episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and on your social networks. Today we talked with Alice Wong and Andrew Polrang about Crip the Vote and the Disability Visibility Project. You can find Alice Wong on Twitter at sfdirewolf. You can find the Disability Visibility Project at disvisibility or on the web at disabilityvisibilityproject.com. You can find Andrew Polrang on Twitter at Andrew Polrang. His blog and podcast are at disabilitythinking.com. You can find their third partner, Greg Baratan, who wasn't with us for this interview, on Twitter at Greg Baratan. You can find their Twitter chats, including their November 10th post-election discussion, under their various hashtags, CripTheVote, CripLit, CripHop, spelled with a K, Intersectional Crips, and others. You can also find these conversations archived on Storify. Music for Tash Amplified is an original composition and performance by Sonny Seferati, the co-director and self-advocacy mentor at The Musical Autist. You can learn more about The Musical Autist at themusicalautist.org. Tash is a values and research-based advocacy association with a 40-year record working for the rights of people with disabilities. On November 30th through December 2nd, Tash will hold its annual conference in St. Louis, Missouri. We hope you will join us there. We will have over 20 hours of presentations on diversity, cultural competency, and self-advocacy, such as the Inclusion Means Diversity and Cultural Competency Symposium, our board president, Ralph Edwards, speaking on a panel, People of Color with Disabilities, Research and Systems Change, and California TASH chapter leader, Natalie Holdren, speaking on Creating a More Diverse TASH, Building Cultural Competency Within TASH Chapters. This is just a few of the 300-plus sessions presented by self-advocates, educators, family members, researchers, and service providers covering inclusive education, self-determination, employment, sexuality, assistive technology, the home and community-based waiver, and more. For a complete schedule of sessions, browsable by speaker and topic, and a register, visit tash.org conference2016. You can receive updates from Tash on this podcast and our other activities by following us on Facebook or on Twitter at TashTweet. This has been a sample of the colleagues and conversations available through Tash. It is only because of the excellent work that our members do that we can bring you this information. For more resources such as this, and to become a member, visit tash.org join. We'll hear from another outstanding advocate again in two weeks.